0: Welcome to Bethel. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor here at the downtown campus. Whether you're on the first floor, the second floor here, or up on the third floor, I want to extend warmest welcome and greeting. There is literally no better place in the cosmos that you could be right now. Indwelled by God's Spirit, surrounded by God's people, about to dive into God's Word. Like, that just doesn't get any better than that. So set your expectations accordingly and join with God's people as we hear about who our God is. Now, some of you will recognize, those of you who've spent any time down here at the downtown campus at all, I generally have a little bit of a, a, a quirk, a, a thing that I like to do. I generally grow a new beard for a new sermon series. And the observant among you will notice that I am now somewhat freshly shaven. We're not changing sermon series, we're just transitioning in our sermon series. <laughs> We're moving from Abraham, as we've been walking through the book of Genesis, we're transitioning, and so I thought it would be appropriate. Not only that, but I was starting to look like Snuffy Smith, and so it was time for a transition and a change. I do want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you that last Sunday, right after church, we met in this very room, and we had a conversation with all of our folks that are in the medical community that are striving, working, serving, loving, leading, guiding, guarding in our community over the last 18 months and how difficult that's been, and that we got to have a conversation to hear from them and hear from their struggles, hear from their fatigue, their exhaustion, what all they are going through, and so we prayed with them, for them, and for our community, and this is essentially what we kind of arrived at, how we're going to continue to pray. We're going to continue to pray for wisdom, because this is hard. We have a tendency to go, yeah, 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 it's all over, it's all good, but it isn't, And so we got to hear from some folks being very honest and transparent, saying there's still a a hardship. There's still a struggle. There's a lot of pain, fear, uncertainty, death, and dying. And so we want to continue to extend help, healing, encouragement, and support. And we've been praying for wisdom. We've been praying for a spirit of peace, not of hostility or division. And if we can model that even in our church, and extend, as Roy Morrison said, the healing ministry of Jesus, then that will be good for our church. It will be good for our community. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me now, and then we're going to continue uh, in worship together as we study God's Word. So let's pray. Father, we do pray for wisdom. We need your help. We like to, to perceive and assume that we are strong, that we have skill and capacity and ability, and you've given us much in that dignity, in your image. And yet, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so, Father, we do want to lift up all of those in various capacities that are serving in our medical community. That You would give them peace, strength, long-suffering, patience, endurance. And that we would all join with them and love them, support them, pray for them, encourage them. That, that we would understand that they are working and serving On our behalf. And so we do want to hold them up in a very real sense before your throne of grace. These are our brothers and sisters, and they're tired. So would you provide rest? Would you provide peace? Would you give us all wisdom? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we're walking through this sermon series, it's in the Old Testament, and yet it is a perfect portrayal of the gospel. When we say the gospel, we mean the good news, the great story, the awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing forward to, preparing for the completion of the gospel. Everything in the New Testament and since is pointing back to the completion, the fulfillment, the finalization of the gospel. It's really good news. In light and in view of the gospel, we as a people are from the future. We live in view of what God has done and what he will complete. And so as we continue in this sermon series in the book of Genesis, I want you to know this is a broadcast, proclamation, projection, declaration of the gospel. The good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. We're in the book of Genesis where, well, how shall I start this? Once upon a time in a land far, far away, there was a man named Moses Tending his sheep for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian when he sees up on a mountainside a bush on fire, consumed and yet not consumed. Moses approaches this strange site where God introduces himself to this man named Moses, who had spent 40 years in Egypt at the seminary of Luxor, learning all of the pantheon of Egypt, and now 40 years in the desert of Midian, understanding how to tend sheep. And God addresses himself as the God, not of the cosmos, not of creation, not the almighty. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God of a very particular people. And so Moses leads the people of Israel out of Egypt into the wilderness, and he explains to them who their God is. You know, the God right over there that we can all see, the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke or cloud. What is he like? He's not like the gods of Egypt. And so Moses tells them the story of Yahweh. What is he like? And we're told the story of Abraham, who in Genesis chapter 12 is sitting in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's a pagan moon worshiper with a barren wife. And God says, yeah, that's the one. That's the guy I'm going to start a whole new nation. That's the one I'm going to show my promise, my goodness to the nations through this guy. We've heard these stories now for six weeks. 25 years go by before finally Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are able to conceive. 25 more years go by when Abraham and Isaac have to take a trip up Mount Moriah where they are intended to perform sacrifice, and yet God provides a substitute, and so Abraham and Isaac worship together. Well, 12 more years go by, and now Abraham is 137 years old. Isaac is 37 years old, and we're told in Genesis chapter 23 that Sarah is 127 years old, and she dies. We find out later that Isaac grieves for his mother for three years. It's been a wonderful story, a wonderful life of Sarah, who comes out of Ur the Chaldeans, who who laughs at God, who doesn't exactly trust, but her life has been rich, and she's gotten to enjoy her son Isaac for 37 years, and she dies. And there's some backstory. She dies, and she's buried in a cave at Machpelah, that is negotiated by Abraham with some Hittites over a long series of negotiations. Abraham buys a field that contains a cave, and she's buried there. It's the only piece of land Abraham will ever own. Despite being promised by God, you will have land, offspring, and blessing. It's not just a story of Sarah's death. Moses is telling the children of Israel she was not returned to the land of her fathers. Abraham and Sarah believed God. They understand that God is faithful. She's buried in the land of Canaan as though to say, this is now our home. There is no going back. This is where Sarah is buried. This is where I will be buried, Abraham says. They trust God. God is faithful. Chapter 23 is the death of Sarah, and it's very efficient. It's very succinct. It's very brief. Chapter 24 is super long and detailed. It's even redundant and repetitive, and it says the same thing a couple times. Why? Because Moses wants the children of Israel, and by extension, us, to understand that God is faithful. As they are about to enter the promised land, they're beginning to wonder. We see obstacles. There's giants. There's some canyons and crevasses and gorges. And we don't know, can God really handle this? And Moses is going, you guys, you guys, you guys. God's got this. Three years after the death of Sarah, Abraham finally decides it's now time for Isaac to take a wife. Abraham is 140 years old. Isaac is 40 years old. This is biblical proof why no male should ever marry before 40. (laughs) No, that's not actually true. It's just the males in my household should not marry and will not marry before they're 40 because they're just not ready. Abraham trusts God. He believes God. He understands now more practically that God is faithful. There's no scheming here. There's no trying to take matters into his own hands. He just says, it's now time for Isaac to get a wife. And so he calls in his chief servant, Eliezer. This is chapter 24. we were introduced to Eliezer in Genesis chapter 15. He's a Gentile. He's from Damascus. He calls in his servant and says, swear to me. Swear to me that you will find a wife for my son Isaac, but that you will not do it from the Canaanites. You will find a wife for my son Isaac from our own kindred. Swear to me. And the text is like super emphatic and redundant. Like, swear to me, Eliezer. In fact, put your hand under my thigh and swear. What? That's a weird day. And the English translation is somewhat generous. The word yarech is not actually thigh. There's a little bit more intimate engagement here in this swearing of this oath. The idea behind the oath is, if you break this oath, then all of my offspring will come after you for reparation and vengeance. And so Eliezer slips his hand under this 140-year-old man's person and swears, I will get a wife for your son Isaac from among your own kindred. And so Eliezer scoops up all these camels and donkeys and gifts and possessions and wealth, and he travels to Padan Aram, which is modern Syria, where he encounters Bethuel and Milcah, the kin of Abraham. And they have a son named Laban and a daughter named Rebekah. And Eliezer prays to God who answers him and says, If you are God and if you have shown favor to my master Abraham, then show me the woman who says thus and such. When I go to get my camels watered, if she says this to me, will you respond? And God does precisely as this Eliezer of Damascus asks. Rebekah approaches She offers to give him water. He receives it. She takes all the time to water 10 camels. I don't know what your morning has looked like. Watering 10 camels takes a long time. This is a very deliberate process. Eliezer rewards her. (laughs) This is a weird day this guy has had. By putting a nose ring in her. Like, hi, I'm Eliezer. Be still. Skink. And it's like a thing of honor, apparently. And she receives it. She runs back and tells her brother and her dad, Dad, guess what? They're like, you got a thing. What happened there? Laban, her brother, negotiates with Eliezer, the servant. That's really interesting. The brother negotiates the bride, not the father. Bethuel, her father, is still there. He's present. And they negotiate. Will he marry? Will he give her? Will she not? Will she go? There's this super long, redundant thing where it's told about three times in chapter 24. Why? Because Moses wants the people of Israel and us to understand that God is faithful. He's working it through. Even though we can't see it, we don't always understand it, and it's not according to our expectations or timeline. Well, she agrees, this Rebekah, and she returns with Eliezer the servant to go back to the land of Canaan to be Isaac's wife. And as they're returning, she sees Isaac meditating at Bir Lahai Roai. Why does the text tell us that? Because that's the place that Hagar, the Egyptian, the mother of Ishmael, went When she had been cast out, it is the place where she names God, the God who sees me, the God who sees. And that's apparently where Isaac would go, to be seen by God and to see God. And while he's there meditating on God, Rebecca comes. She sees him. She dismounts her camel. The music swells. They go together and their husband and wife and they live happily ever after. Well, not exactly. Not exactly. Then we transition into Genesis chapter 25. Some three years after Sarah's death, Abraham's still on the scene. Well, Abraham, I'm not dead yet. He's not quite dead yet. He's 140, but he takes another wife named Keturah. And Keturah gives him six more sons and presumably many daughters as well. We're just not told that. So Abraham lives a long time. In fact, we're going to find out that Abraham lives 35 years longer after Isaac and Rebekah are married. And yet, we see no maneuverings, no mischief, no scheming, no craftiness, no devious behaviors from Abraham. 35 years, he's watching. He's watched Isaac grow up to be 40 years old. No offspring, no wife. He's patient. Now, Isaac and Rebekah have been married for 35 years. No offspring, and he's patient. He takes nothing into his own hands. And finally, at the age of 175 years old, Abraham dies. And that period of that patriarch passes. He's buried in the cave at Machpelah with his wife, Sarah. Those six sons that he has, including Ishmael, are all told with much blessing and much gift to go east. And Moses wants the Israelites to know, this land is your land. Your father Abraham made provision. You need not fear. They are to the east, they are to the south. This is for the descendants of Isaac. We're told at the end of that section in Genesis 25 that Ishmael has 12 sons. God is honoring that promise to Abraham regarding his son Ishmael. He has 12 sons, but what's the deal with Isaac? He is the first promise, provision, but there's no children. There's no offspring. What's going on? And then we transition to Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to look at verse 19 to the end of the chapter together. So if you've got your Bible, Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 19. Moses writes, these are the generations of Isaac. Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac, as if we don't know that. But what's going on? The term here in Genesis 25, 19, these are the generations of Isaac. This word generations is a little bit off. It's not full and rich enough. The Hebrew term is toledo, toledo. I want you to say toledo. Toledo, you need to know this word. A Toledo is a history and a heritage. It is a legacy and a lineage. It, it, it's not merely the generations. It is his story. It is everything encompassing him, his faith journey, his identity, all of his people, tribe, and clan. This is the story of Isaac, Moses writes. Abraham's son, Abraham fathered Isaac. Yet yeah, we know that. But Moses wants us to understand this. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So now we're getting the whole story of the faithfulness of God lived out in the life of Isaac. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Why? Because she was barren. What's the deal, God? You promised, and yet you keep using barren chicks. Can we not get someone that's like, you know, able to just, you know, no. God is going to show again and again that against all perceived understanding, against all expectation and conventional wisdom, God will bring life from death. Because he's the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But Rebecca's barren. What are we going to do? Do you see how the lineage is beginning to pass down? Abraham and Sarah took matters into their own hands. They got Hagar. They did this. Can you not take Eliezer? Can you take Ishmael? Can you take Lot? God said, no, no, no. It's going to be Isaac. And you're going to call him laughter. Isaac's wife. He's 40 years old. Come on, God. We're running out of time. Let's get on with it. She's barren. What does Isaac do? Scheme? Devise? Get crafty? No. He prays to Yahweh. Isn't this good? We're beginning to see the lineage and the legacy of faithfulness passed down from a father to a son. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Yes! Well, not exactly. Missing a really important element in the story at this point. What we find out in just a few verses is that she did conceive. 20 years later, Isaac doesn't have children until he's 60, he prays to the Lord the Lord says, I got this. Yes. But doesn't tell Isaac, it'll be 20 years to wait. 20 years. Can you imagine? And still, we never see Isaac get crafty or take matters into his own hands. He's learned from his father that God is faithful. Verse 22 the children struggled together within her. <laughs> That's, uh, wait a second. She conceived. She's going to have a kid. Wait, wait, wait. Now we're plural? Oh, Yahtzee, we've got twins. And the text says that they struggled. No, no, there's like a water polo match happening in there, all right? The text literally says the children smashed one another. I mean, there's full-on smash dance happening in here, and it wasn't pleasant. I've never been pregnant. I just look like I am, but it was apparently a concern for her. I mean, it was uncomfortable and miserable. These these kids were smashing one another inside of her, and she's going, what is the deal? And it's so much of a deal. that Watch what she does. The children struggled within her, and she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? God promised, why is this hard? Huh, you ever ask that? Why is everything so hard? I thought God loved me. He does. And sometimes it's hard. And that's okay. So she went to inquire of the Lord. This is shocking. This is a female, a Gentile. Not of the line of Abraham directly. And she prays to Yahweh, and Yahweh hears, and he heeds, and he responds. And the Lord said to her, You don't just have twins. There's a border dispute happening in there. You've got a racial conflict happening. Yeah, there's two different people groups being formed inside of you. Of course there's conflict. And she's like, "Well, I didn't ask for that. He's like, I didn't ask you what you asked for. Your two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Wait, what? That defies all conventional wisdom and logic and approach. The younger is going to serve? No. The older is going to serve the younger. That's not how things are supposed to go. God says, don't care. Here's how I'm going to work it. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first, this is so great. Moses, I think, has got a little extra time whenever he's writing this particular passage. It's so creative, so clever. It's so Shakespearean in the literary form. There's all kinds of wordplay. We could spend weeks on this, but praise be to God, we're not going to. I'm going to be somewhat efficient here. But there's all kinds of wordplay and cleverness in the literature. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Harry. That's literally, that's what Esau means, Harry. Look at this guy. He looks like a shower mat. I mean, he's like a little baby squatch. And so they named him Harry. This is amazing. You would never make this up. He comes out and he, I mean, he's like a chia baby. And so they name him Harry. Wow, that's a strange day. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. If you're the midwife, you're like, what is going on? I I don't know how that happens, but the other one's grasping Esau's heel. So his name was called Sneaky. That's right. We just gave birth to Harry and Sneaky. They named him Jacob. Okay, well, there's a tremendous wordplay going on here. The the Hebrew word for for heel is akav. And there's a wordplay. There's a Hebraic idiom. It says, when you sneak up from behind somebody, you sneak up from the heel. Because it's a, it's a metaphor for you come up behind them. And so you sneak up from behind the Akav. And so they name him Yah-Akav. He sneaks it from behind. But the name has gotten changed and sort of scrubbed and polished and niceified. Now it means the Lord will protect. That's what people say Jacob means. And it does. Yah-Akav. God will provide and protect from your rear flank. But it's, he's a heel grasper. He's sneaky, this guy. That's interesting. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. He waits 20 years for God to honor this prayer. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. (laughs) This is so good. Again, more wordplay. He's a hairy, red man of the field. And there's all these really interesting little synonyms that Moses is using here. He's a gamesman. He's a firstborn male. He's characterized by wrecking and crashing things. I work with two of those, Mike and Matt. They're firstborn males. They're the aggressor. They just get things. And then there's a secondborn male who's more civilized, spends his time indoors preparing sermons and praying for his people. (laughs) This is What what we secondborns do. Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man. He wore sweater vests, dwelling in tents. (laughs) The word that's used here of Jacob is not one we often associate with him. He was a tam, T-A-M is the transliteration of the Hebrew word tam. It means peaceful, complete, full of integrity, guiltless, and blameless. Now, we don't always think of Jacob that way, but he has the long view. He at least has the perspective of spiritual things where Esau is always going to be described with passionate, emotional, fleshy kinds of terms. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. There's a play on words. Hunter is Saeed and game is Saeed. And so Isaac loves the firstborn male because he's more like Isaac. We have a tendency to like that which is like us, to affirm that which affirms us. But we have some conflict. Rebecca loved Jacob. Uh-oh, parents, never, ever do this. This is going to manifest badly here in a few chapters. Now, verse 29. Once when Jacob was cooking stew. Now, again, Moses is so clever. Once when Jacob was tzied, tzied. There's, a, there's a there's a play on words here. The idea of cooking here is not your typical word for cooking. It's got this idea of boiling over the pot. And so Moses is saying, once when Jacob was boiling over, he was overextending himself. He was overreaching. It's kind of an idiomatic expression, like he was out kicking his coverage. He was out driving his headlights. He was out too far over his skis, is what Moses is doing. here. Now, we lose this some 3,500 years later, but this is what Moses is doing. Once, because time has passed, Jacob was boiling. He was overextending his reach, we might say. Now, this is probably a familiar story, but I don't want you to miss what Moses is communicating here. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. So there's some cold calculation with Jacob, but Esau is an animal. He's red and hairy. In fact, later where Esau will dwell, they call it red and hairy. The Edomites, the land was called Seir. It's a play on words for the Hebrew term. He's more of an animal, fleshly driven. But Jacob is cold and calculating. What we're seeing is the hunter is now being hunted. Moses wants the Israelites to know how this all went down and why they can take faith and that this land is their land. The hunter is being hunted, verse 30. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff, literally, for I'm exhausted. Hey, drama queen, easy, easy. But what we're being told is this hunter got no game this time. He comes back famished. Moses adds, therefore his name was called Red. Give me some of that red stuff. And so they called him Red. Ow! He is forever identified with his weakness, his fleshliness. That's not how you want to be remembered. Give me some of that red stuff, for I'm exhausted. The idea is it's red, but it's we'll find out it's lentil stew. It's not usually red. Esau thinks it's meat, but there's no meat. It's just vegetables. One of the greatest disappointments in human history. You think you're getting meat, and it's legumes. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. He springs the trap. Why is that such a big deal? Listen, we don't understand it in the 21st century in Western civilization. The birthright of the firstborn male was everything. Everything. You are the one through whom the promise will continue. You are the one through whom all of the estate, all of the lands, all the property, the livestock, the servants, everything goes through that one person. You can't divvy it up evenly because then the family name will be divided and you will lose prestige, power, and prominence. The firstborn son was everything. But Jacob knows that his brother is a meathead and he's starving. Sell me your birth right now. Watch what happens. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Drama queen. But not only that, for Esau, it's all about him. He knows the promise that God gave Abraham. He knows the promise that God gave to Isaac. Esau does not care. It's all about him. He has no interest in being a continuation of the faithfulness of God. What do I care? I'm about to die. Well, he wasn't. But even if he did, it's a misunderstanding. It's a short, short view. Jacob has a longer view. And you get the sense that Esau's thinking, just, just do it, whatever. If I want it back, I'll get it later. My brother, older brother, used to tell me, I hate this story. This, is, this can't be true. If I want something from you, I'll just hit you and take it. Why didn't Esau just hit him and take it? I, I don't know. But, no. Yeah. Jacob said, swear to me, verse 33, now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Boom. It's just that fast. What's Moses doing? Moses is telling them, Esau did this. The Edomites did this. You don't have to fear them. God is faithful. It might look like they're strong. They might be foul-tempered and smell bad. But this is your land. You can trust God. He is faithful. No matter how it looks, no matter how you feel, God is faithful. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, (laughs) no beef. And the Wendy's commercial was born, where's the beef? Sorry, you lose. And he ate and drank and rose and went. In the Hebrew, it's very quick staccato verb. He guzzled, he gasped, (laughs) and he got up and left. And then very strangely, very uniquely, this doesn't often happen, Moses adds commentary to the narrative. Thus, he says at the end of verse 34, Esau... Despised his birthright. Esau did this, Israelites. You have nothing to fear. They did this, the Edomites. They abandoned their right, and God knew that they would. See, Jacob had heard his mother tell him over and over again the older will serve the younger, but Sneaky didn't wait. Sneaky took matters into his own hands. He didn't have to do that. So, why do we care? Why do we sitting here care about what happened on the other side of the world 4,000 years ago? Oh, it matters so much. I want to give you several implications and principles and things that we can walk out of here with. Uncharacteristically, I want to be very practical and helpful. I want to give you seven. Yes, that's right, seven, because six is too few and eight too many. Seven. Seven principles that I want us to all preserve in some way. Number one goes like this. God's promises do not end with this life. you got to hear that. you got to hear that. Some of you just need your, your perspective, your mind broadened, widened, thickened, and deepened. And you're thinking, this is it. This is this life. I can hear the clock ticking. No, you don't. God's promises don't end with this life. Abraham and Sarah died with virtually no land in the land of promise at all. They had a field with a cave. And yet... God in no way fell short of the promise that he made to them. Do you hear that? They died. And God did not break his promise. He will get it done. He will fulfill it. The writer of Hebrews tells us that they finished their lives on this earth, eagerly awaiting the completion and fulfillment of that which is still to come, and it will. Just because things don't go how we expect, and they rarely will, by the way, Just because things don't actually conclude like we'd like them to in this lifetime, we can take total comfort and rest and peace, knowing for certain that God will fulfill his promise of blessing. And look, a failure to really understand and believe that truth often produces in us a drive to scheme and grasp what we think is owed us, what we're entitled to on our terms, and it never, never, never works out. This life is not the end of the available time for God to bless you richly. I'm going to say that again. This life is not the end of the available time for God to bless you richly. We make too little of God. We think too small of eternity. And that's because, point number two, God's promises demand resurrection. Now, I deal with a whole lot of Christians in this day and age, even in the 21st century, that, yeah, love God, want to go to heaven when they die, but that's about as deep as their faith goes. No, our hope is the resurrection. And what we're seeing in Genesis 4,000 years ago in the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is that God's promises demand resurrection, it's a preparation for the gospel. Almost certainly God's promises are not going to come to full completion in your lifetime. Almost certainly. Unless the Lord should return. And I would love that. That'd be totally awesome. I'm totally ready. I've got got a little shaving kit packed just in case. I am so ready for that. But should he tarry, which has been his tendency for the last 2,000 years? His promises to you and me are probably not going to be fully completed in this lifetime. But God has to make absolutely good on all of his promises to Abraham and David and Jesus for land, offspring, and blessing, so that all of the nations all over the world are ultimately blessed through him. God cannot default on his promises, or he ceases being God. And that's the one thing he cannot do is un-God God. And so he has to fulfill his promises. That means the resurrection is a God-sized requirement. Have you ever thought about it that way? Like, boy, I sure hope this happens. No, it's absolutely guaranteed by the essence of who our God actually is and what he is. So we're to take heart and eagerly expect the resurrection just as we expect the sun to rise in the east in the morning. It's how God will get done what God will get done. It began with Jesus as a down payment, as a guarantee of what awaits us. He is the firstborn from among the dead. The promise to Abraham demands resurrection, and we see it happen in Jesus. We know more than we know our own name that we will rise again. Now, a people and a person that understands that and lives accordingly is a very weighty person indeed. Point number three think rightly about this God. Think rightly about this God that identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What we think about God, Tozer said, is the most important thing about us. This God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is. Faithful. Not only do we have Moses commenting on this passage at the end, we even have the writer of Hebrews, 1500 years after Moses, comment directly on this passage. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. The writer of Hebrews says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy, profane. Bebelos, it's ungodly and common, worldly. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, and not just a single meal, a meal prepared by a single man. Ooh, how good could that have been? That's base, man. You sold your blessing for a meal prepared by a single man. No offense, Andrew, I'm just saying. Don't be like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau could not win back the favor of God in his own power, no matter how hard he tried. And Now, this passage is not about a loss of salvation. It's about thinking rightly, deeply, largely about God, having the longer view like Jacob did. Having the right view of ourselves and the severity of sin and the glory of the offer of salvation. Esau thought too much of himself and the flesh and too little about God and the spiritual things that matter. Speaking of which, point number four, want what God wants. Now that takes a rethinking of your thinking such that it will have been rethunk. You and I are shown these wonderful stories and narratives so that we will want what God wants. It's been said if we knew what God knew, we would want what God wants. Well, we're being told what God knows, that he is faithful. It's a wonderful picture of what God knows and what he wants. God wants our very best at all times and in every circumstance, and he's always working to that end, even if we don't see it, understand it, or expect it. So we don't surrender spiritual truths for physical experiences like Esau did. You will have the cravings of the flesh. And yet we see one in Jesus, in the temptation in the wilderness, in Luke 4 and Matthew 4, who tempted beyond any of our ability to understand, always, always yielded the fleshly feelings to the spiritual matters. This passage shows us the tragedy of wanting only the base things and settling for never getting the best things. And that's the mark of spiritual maturity that we willingly enter into delayed gratification because of a proper perspective, that of the Lord. Esau didn't have a proper perspective. He didn't want what God wanted, but Jacob did. Well, at least for a time, which brings me to point number five. We all get spiritual amnesia. We all do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when we sin, it's not so much that we hate God, it's that we choose to forget him. We forget actively or passively that God is faithful. Not only does the writer of Hebrews comment on this passage. Not only does Moses himself comment on this passage, we even get God himself speaking directly using this story, this passage, as an illustration. The very last book in your Old Testament is the book of Malachi. 1,100 years after Moses, Israel has fallen into great depravity, great disobedience, great faithlessness. And God speaks through Malachi to the people the last thing that god will say before 400 years of silence god speaks through malachi and this is what he says in malachi chapter 1 verses 2 and 3 i have loved you <laughs> what are you doing israel i've loved you you're my favorite why won't you just learn to live like you're loved i've loved you but you say how have you loved us what have you done for us lately says israel you've Said that? Not out loud, because you're way holier than that. But you've thought it, and you felt it, and you've done it. You say, how have you loved us? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, your descendants. But Esau I have hated. Now, don't get tripped up on that. That just means to have passed over in the Hebrew sense. I have laid waste Esau's hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. See, 1100 years after Moses, the Israelites had corporately forgotten of the faithfulness of God and they assumed that he wasn't faithful, so they drifted into all sorts of sinful and faithless behaviors. And we all have a tendency to drift, and nothing drifts to good. R.C. Sproul brilliantly put it this way When God blesses us the first time, we give thanks. The second time when he blesses us, we're silent. The third time he blesses us, we've come to expect it. It is our entitlement. The fourth time he blesses us, we get mad that it wasn't enough or that it wasn't quick enough. And that's the story of Israel, and that's my story. That's why Moses writes this to the Israelites and why we have these narratives, so that we will rage, rage against spiritual amnesia together. That's why we come together and have this time in community. Number six goes like this. God is sovereign. I know we all say that and know that, but let me explain. God is sovereign. This word sovereign comes from an old English word that means super reign. The the monarch of monarchs, the king of kings, the lord of lords. He answers to no one. Over time, super reign got changed to supran. And then over time, with the English language developing, it became sovereign. You do what you please. That's what Psalm 115 says. The Lord is in his heaven. He does as he pleases. That's sovereign. The problem is that's what we want. I just want to be able to do whatever I want, when I want, how I want because we're little graspers of heels, all of us. We clutch, we scheme, we devise. But God is the sovereign one, and he's good. Paul uses this story himself. We've had Moses comment on it. God comments on it in Malachi. The writer of Hebrews comments on it. Paul comments on it on Romans 9 to show that God chooses. He chooses Jacob and not Esau. We see that he chooses always, not always, very frequently the younger brother to serve, Reuben is the firstborn of Jacob, but the blessing doesn't come through him. It comes through Judah. Judah has twins, but it's the younger that God chooses over and over again. God is sovereign in his choice. In other words, as Spurgeon said, if you responded to God and believed, it's because God responded and called you. God has his reasons, and you are not it. But he loves you, and he's good, and you can trust him. He is faithful. There is a God, and I am not he. God is faithful. Which brings me to our seventh and final principle. Know your Toledo. That's why I had you say this. Do you know your Toledo? Remember, a Toledo is a legacy and a lineage. It's a heritage and a history. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where are you going? What is your purpose? What is your process What is your path? What will you deposit for future generations? Have you thought that far? Or are you like Esau? What about me? What about my hunger right now? Oh, no. What is your Toledo? Do you know? Or are you merely adrift in the cosmos? The Toledo of Eric Barton. I am Eric Barton, son of Jean and Sylvia, grandson to Seth and Alice, and Paulita and Juan Rendon. I was taught of the faithfulness of God in two countries and in two languages. There has never been a time when I did not know that God was God. There's never been a time I didn't believe. Oh, but there have been seasons of scheming. There have been vast distances of deviousness and drifting. But I am married to a woman who loves me named Susan. And she puts me to death on a daily basis, and necessarily so. She is the sanctification of the flesh. She makes me better. And I have two sons, Ethan Barton and Joshua Barton, and they will not get married until they are 40 (laughs) or after. And they are my very best. And they know who God is. And there has never been a time That they have not known that God was God. Oh, they have drifted, they have wondered, they have had questions, they've even had doubts. But they know from looking at their mother and their father that God is God and that He is faithful. I am Eric Barton. I am a member of Bethel Bible Church, and I'm surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. This little colony of the kingdom, this people that is from the future, that is walking around, broadcasting, proclaiming that God is faithful. This is the gospel. Do you know your Toledo? Is your Toledo that your God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Eric? May it be so. See, Jesus introduces us to this God. Unlike Laban, who we'll find out later was a scheming big brother, our big brother, oh, he's good. Unlike the big brother in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son, our big brother sacrificially does all so that he can have for himself a bride. Do you have that story? Is that your Toledo? I pray that it is. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time we've had to look at what you are, what you're like, what you have done, and who you have invited us to be in Christ. And so, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here that does not know you, that does not have a Toledo of your faithfulness, would you move irresistibly and lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus, that they would step out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that they would have everlastingness with you. Father, for the rest of us, would you remind us that there is a long, long, long view. We have a tendency, Father, we know this, to be overwhelmed by circumstance and feeling, to look at the waves rather than looking at your Son. And so we fall. Would you use this passage by the indwelling of your Spirit to remind us of your faithfulness, that we would have peace and fulfillment and therefore joy, and as a result, that we would be impactful and influential among the nations. This is your plan. May we walk in it. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.